Hey everyone, uh, welcome back. Uh, sorry it's been a while. It, you know, la end of uh, Q4 last year was more than a little hectic for me, and I kind of got away from these. And then I it tended to start back up in January, and then uh, luckily came down with COVID. I say that sarcastically. Uh, I don't recommend it to anybody. Um, I, I, I got to be honest. I I think my case wasn't nearly as bad as some other people's cases were. I never had the fever that some people had, or some of the other more severe symptoms. I just suffered from exhaustion the whole time and I couldn't taste anything. Um, and, and, and honestly, losing your sense of taste was one of the weirder things that's ever happened to me. It was very strange to have a pizza in front of you. Uh, you can put hot sauce on it and you know whatever, a sausage and whatever pizza and eat it and have absolutely no idea if the pizza is any good or not. Uh, it was a very, very odd experience. Uh, very, very weird. Uh, but uh, so I'm at about week three of it, you know, no longer contagious, anything like that, but you still have a little recovery time. So uh, things are getting better. So if you have your chance to get your vaccination for it, go get it because it's whatever minor side effects people have on these vaccinations, it's far, far better than getting the COVID. So, uh, but, you know, everything's good. And it's weird, you know, kids have had it and kids report having a head cold for a day or two. And uh, so definitely uh, as you get older in age, it definitely does more of a number on you. And so I was never a, a, a smoker of tobacco. Uh, so, you know, I think that uh, that was probably helpful also. A few people I do know who were smokers had, had difficulties and had some complications. Uh, everyone's fine now, but uh, they, they had a rough patch of it. So you know, especially if you're a smoker, uh, make sure you do what you can to uh, avoid this thing. So, but anyway, I, I had a couple of questions come in and I wanted to, you know, do a quick podcast, kind of apologize for the end of last year, get back into it for this year. It's January, well, it's February now. Um, and just kind of keep moving forward on it. So I guess we'll talk about kind of I'll go through the portfolio real quick, see where we're at, my thought process on it. We'll talk a little bit about, um, going forward in this year, where we think things are at and how I think things are going to shake out and, and then what I'm looking at, what I'm not looking at, and 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 I guess we'll go from there. And then hopefully we get to start getting some more questions. I really prefer to do this when we have questions. Um, you know, I it's a lot more. You know, I feel like I'm doing more help when I'm answering questions than I'm sitting here talking because I I really want to be able to answer the questions people have, uh, not kind of assume what they may be thinking about and and kind of lecture on it. So uh, send them in, and we'll get going back on this on a regular basis. So. You know, when the whole thing with, with COVID hit, um, you know, throughout the summer and fall last year, you know, I, I said I was, was at the highest cash purchases I'd been in for a while. And that remains true, about 30% net cash. And um, I, I got rid of some of the more sensitive names um, to the consumer. And I kept, I, what it basically what I kept in my mind were essential businesses or businesses that uh, weren't going to be um, significantly impaired uh, if the economy slowed down significantly, went into a recession. Uh, they were maybe companies where the stocks would fall, but they're good, solid companies that would come out the other side stronger. And if the stocks fell with the cash I had, I'd be happy to add to those positions. And, you know, last March was a perfect example of that. And we'll go into that and talk about that and stuff like that. So, and as I look at our portfolio, you know, we have Bank of America, you know, I, I think you could argue J.P. Morgan, Bank of America are the two most well-run banks in the U.S. right now. So I'm happy to hold shares in number one or number two, however you want to classify it. Uh, you know, I've been a fan of Brian Moynihan 
since the time, day he came on, uh, before we made the investment, uh, initially, oh God, when was that? Uh, 2011, we've held, oh my God, almost 10 years we've held it for. Um, uh, and, you know, I, he's a very smart, boring guy. And I like my bankers boring. You know, we had plenty of flashy bankers in the past, and God, that has never ended well. Uh, so boring bankers are really are really good. And uh, I liked Moynihan. I bought into it. I have no intention of selling it as long as he's there. If the stock drops in a recession, I'm happy to add to it. You know, obviously, depending on, you know, other stocks portfolio where the other opportunities are. I don't have – I'm not buffer. We don't have unlimited cash pouring in every month to invest in things. So, um, you know, we'll, we'll just take that by ear and, and, and see how it goes. So, you know, AIG Insurance, I love AIG. Well-run company, still not anywhere near the valuation should be at, but I think it's going to get there. Uh, Apple, I look at Apple, you know, people run their lives right now on their smartphones. So the smartphone makers or the, the Android, Google, and, and Apple, uh, iOS, they're, they're essentials, right? Who doesn't have a smartphone that runs one of those under the age of 75 years old, right? Very, very few people. So, you know, there's going to be a permanent market for those products. I also, you look at Apple, they've gotten into the credit card game. And I honestly think with what they're doing with the Apple Watch and health, I think it's a really underappreciated opportunity for the company. I can envision, call it two to four years from now, your Apple Watch and your Apple phone being the main conduit between you, your doctor, and hospitals and insurance and everything. Um, you know, with its ability and the continued improving of its ability to monitor your biological functions in real time. And you can imagine a scenario where, you know, something starts happening with your heart or something starts happening with your body and your watch is able to detect that, notify your healthcare provider and, you know, actions could be taken to possibly save someone's life. I mean, I, and I honestly believe this is going to happen. And I think Apple will be the conduit between you and your medical providers. And I, and I think that's, I think it's not only possible, it's inevitable at some point, given the advances they're making, every new Apple watch that comes out has increased capabilities to monitor your health. And I think that's a massive, huge thing, especially with what's going on now. Um, I, I think it's invaluable. So I, I, I would look for that business to kind of explode in the next two to four years with Apple as they get bigger at this. And, and you know, people want to know what's going on with their bodies and things like that. I think, I think it's a huge opportunity. The car thing, I, mean, I don't know. It's, you know, I guess if you look at Tesla, so I guess if Apple can invest billions of it, lose billions in the car, the stock will probably triple in price in a couple of years. So, I mean, there's there's no rhyme or reason to what's going on with Tesla stock in the car market. So, who who knows what that's going to do for the company? I, I you know I don't I don't know if the, if if Kia is going to make the cars and Apple is going to put technology in them. I don't know what the exact thing's going to work out, but you know, uh, there's a lot of uh, weirdness in the market right now, and I think that. Uh, uh, I just think it's something that's going to keep happening. So uh, it is what it is. So, um, you know, Howard Hughes, you know, are they necessary? Well, where they where they operate, they are. You know, in Houston and Bridgeland, yeah, they're, they're necessary, right? They run those MPCs. They are the landlord of those MPCs. They're the operator of those MPCs. In Summerlin, yeah, they're necessary. Um, you know, the Southbridge Seaport's been an albatross since day one. Uh, what New York City's done over the last year and Oh, almost a year now, uh, you know, has, has further hampered any efforts in that area. Uh, I do think O'Reilly has a better vision for it than Weinreb. Uh, I do think he'll bring in more, uh, instead of the, 
you know, niche um, sort of uh, uh, high, 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 super high end retailers, you know, that sell, you know, $50,000 couches. Uh, I think they'll bring in more mass, um, sort of more um, uh, mass shopping, you know, more, you know, lower price points on things and get more retailers in there that are more well known and just get more people in the area, bring it back to life. So I, I think. I, I've met O'Reilly a couple of times. I think he's a great guy. He has a great vision for the company. So, you know, I continue to hold that. And I think that, you know, at some point in time, this company is going to get the valuation it deserves. It's, it's been frustrating the last two years, but, you know, it, you know, it's, it'll happen. It'll happen over time. They have good management. So, you know, the GSEs, um, so I basically, I basically got out of the GSEs. I kept a small, small stake in them just for, you know, just to stay involved in it because it's been so long. But, you know, I kind of came to the conclusion in October that we weren't going to have a scenario where um, uh, Mnuchin or Calabria were going to take them out before the election. Uh, it looked increasingly to me uh, on also a daily basis that this just wasn't something that was going to happen. And after, you know, what, six years of being in them, I decided that was enough. Uh, the experience earlier in the year in March with what happened to a lot of our stocks and the, the rebounds in them uh, only solidified my thinking. And uh, as I looked at it more and as I continue to look at it, you know, I, I think I think it's increasingly likely we see a scenario where investors could win in court for the Supreme Court, but not win with their pocketbooks. Yes, the GSEs are retaining capital, but yes, the government's liquidation preference is growing too, along with it. So it's for shareholders, it's a zero-sum game, right? You, you win on one end, you lose on the other. You've gained nothing. Um, I don't see a scenario where the Supreme Court looks at the government and says, you owe these shareholders $250 billion back or two eighty, whatever it's at now. Um, I don't see that scenario either. Um, it could be a how do we fix this going forward, right? Which means what? Well, we raise money, we raise capital, we dilute the ever-loving hell out of everybody. And there's maybe some scraps left for shareholders. So, and that process could take another year, year and a half. I mean, let's be real, right? It's you're not going to have the biggest offering in the history of the world. It's not going to happen by Q1, Q2, right? You're probably talking 2022. And given the opportunities I saw in some of our stocks, I continue to see in some of our stocks. I just don't have any desire to stick around for that possibility. Um, and a lot of my I wanted to raise capital over the summer. I wanted to increase my cash flows, and I looked around. And I said, "You know what? I mean, look what we did. Look what we did in March, March of last year. Remember the market tanked like a thousand points in one day, and people were panicking. We bought Kinder Morgan four times: twelve percent gain, twenty percent gain, thirty percent gain, fifty-nine percent gain. We bought Williams three times." 65% gain, 94% gain, 157% gain. We bought IIPR twice, 295% gain, 401% gain. I mean, when I looked at that, I was like, why the hell, six years later, am I still sitting in this GEC stocks waiting for a gift from the courts? That, honestly, I just don't think is going to come anymore. Remember, just because you win before the Supreme Court, if you do, it does not mean the remedy is you get all your money back. 
the Supreme Court is not going to order the liquidation of Fannie and Freddie to appease shareholders. It's not going to happen. It just isn't. So if that's not true, go back to geometry, if this, then that, if that's not true, then what happens? Well, they, they're forced to raise money. And they're just going to liquidate. They're going to not liquidate. They're going to um, uh, dilute the common, and they're going to dilute the preferreds when they convert them. They're just going to dilute the shit out of them. Uh, now, I'm guessing if you're a trader, the day the news comes out, the stocks will probably spike because everyone thinks, oh, my God, we just won. We got all our money back. Uh, and you'll probably be able to take advantage of that if you're quick and you're, you're at your computer when the news breaks. But if you're not, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know. I just don't. You know, it, it comes down to other opportunities. And I think we have other opportunities I'd much rather put money into than, uh, you know, hang on to the GSEs for another two years uh, and keep going on this roller coaster. Uh, what's going on? We still have no idea what Yellen or Biden want to do with it. They haven't even talked about it. It hasn't even come up in casual conversation. So there's clearly, clearly no interest whatsoever there. Uh, certainly no um uh, urgency to do anything with them. You know, they all say the right thing. You know, we need to take care of the GSEs and make sure everything's. You know, it's all the it's the same party line that they've been talking about for how many years now. Um, so I, I'm just not no desire to be in them anymore. I, I have a little bit left, a tiny, tiny amount that you know. We'll see what happens with it, and, and I don't know, but I'm not I'm not optimistic about it. So um, you know, but again, so. Uh, as it went back through, and I said, okay, what do I have? Kinder Morgan, Williams, I look at them as essential. And here's the reason why. You know, whether Republican or Democrat, if you own pipeline companies, Joe Biden just did you the favor of a lifetime. When he killed Keystone and put a moratorium on drilling on federal lands, and the, the, the guidance that has come out, essentially, there will be no more building of gas or oil pipelines in the U.S. of any significant size whatsoever for the next four years. Okay, it's it's basically he basically shut it down. You'll have some, you know, some um, oh, what are they called? You'll have some smaller pipelines connecting other pipelines and stuff like that. But these three, four hundred, five hundred mile, thousand mile pipelines, they're done. They're over. Whatever. So what does that mean? Well, think about it. Every year, the demand for energy rises, right? We need more natural gas. We need more oil. You know, and people say, oh, what about electric cars? Well, yeah, the number one producer of electricity in the U.S. is natural gas. Okay, so the more electric cars you have, the less oil you'll need, which is fine because Williams and, and Kinder Morgan are primarily natural gas companies. You'll need more natural gas to offset right, the number of cars that are using gasoline. We need more natural gas to produce electricity. And no, renewables aren't going to fill the gap. You know, renewables have taken 20, 30 years, 40 years actually, uh, I think it's a 10 to 11 percent. Um, by the time they will replace coal, which is still, I think, at 25 percent uh, before they even touch natural gas. So we're talking, you know, probably 30, 40 years down the road um, with any sort of significant. Uh, we have to worry about anything. But for the next five or six years, what do you have? So you have increasing demand, which means we have to satiate that demand, which means we have to drill more and we have to produce more gas. Right. So you have more gas coming, more demand, and you have a bottleneck of transportation. You have no new pipelines being built. So if you're, the, you're in the middle of that, you have increasing demand on both sides of you. Economics 101, what happens? Your prices go up. 
shippers will outbid each other for contracts for these pipelines because there's not any new ones coming. So right now, between Kinder Morgan and Williams, we touch about 70% of the gas in the U.S. in some way. Give or take. About 70% between the two of them. Kinder Morgan's at about 40. Williams is between 28, 25 and 30. So I figure 65 to 70% of all natural gas in the U.S., Kinder Morgan and Williams touch. We are going to need more of that natural gas. They're the people that hold the keys to it because they're transporting it from A to B. Liquefied natural gas exports are rising exponentially year over year. That gas still has to come from someplace to get to the processing facilities to be loaded. How does it get there? Pipelines. And we're not building any more of them. So for the next four years, it's a great place to be. Additionally, if, you know, it, it takes several years to build a pipeline. So if there's no more permitting going on, no more plans going on, no more approvals going on for the next four years, basically, it's going to be another three or four years after that when they lose, assuming, assuming someone takes power in Washington. I don't think Biden's going to do more in four years. Guy's too old. Barely has his faculties right now, and four years is going to be worse. So whoever's in power then, we have to assume that they're going to want to open that back up. Even if they do on day one, you're still talking to two to three years before you get more pipelines. So for the next seven years, what we got for pipelines, other than some small additions here or there, that's what we got. So if you're the pipe, it's like, it's like having more cars. It's like having a highway with a toll bridge with more and more people living over here, having to use your thing to get the more and more jobs over here. They got to use your road. And there's only so many people that can go on that road every day. And these pipelines can only push through so much natural gas on a daily basis. So if you're the driver, say, hey, uh, well, I'll give you an extra 20 cents a mile. I'll give you an extra 30 cents a mile. You start competing for, for, for space on that highway. That's exactly what's happening with pipelines. The second gift was the no more drilling permits on public lands, on federal lands. So if you know anything about the Permian, you look at it, the best part of the Permian is that New Mexico-Texas border. Well, all the drilling lands in New Mexico are on federal lands. So what does that mean now? If you want to tap the most valuable part of the Permian, which TPL is the basically the exclusive landlord of it, right there, the major landholder in that area. And if you look at the New Mexico-Texas border, that's all TPL land. So all those drillers now got to come south into Texas. TPL is just going to be sitting there saying, hey, yeah, you can drill on our land. You got competition now for the leases. So what are you going to give me? And we can see the reaction of the stock price over the last month since Biden had the executive orders. It's been massive. So I look at those businesses, you know, you know, you can, my logic may be flawed or not, but I look at them as essential, right? We have to have natural gas shipped across the U.S. for energy. We have to have it. Primoris is the infrastructure. We need infrastructure. No, I like that company. I think it's undervalued. We're up sixty percent in it. Uh, I think I think it can go higher. So that that's kind of where I left the portfolio. And then I looked at it again, and I said, "Well, you know, what do I think is going to happen in twenty twenty one?" You know, the government's done a good job with foreclosure moratoriums and repossession moratoriums and eviction moratoriums. Gave people a little extra money on unemployment, gave people one-time checks. Again, none of that, I think, 
when all these are lifted, I think we're going to, you know, what's Buffett's quote? You don't know who's swimming naked till the tide goes out. You know, the government floated a lot of people in 2020. Looks like they're going to try to do it again in 2021. Uh, who knows what size of the package? Who knows what's going to happen? Uh, but the destruction has already happened in the economy underneath that. You know, you have the government pouring money in the top of the funnel, but the bottom of the funnel is disappearing. 40% of small businesses in Massachusetts are gone. Nationally, it's not much different. We're not talking temporary close. We're talking gone. And the primary uh, people in those, it's, it's restaurants. Now, having spent a large part of my life in the restaurant business earlier in my, earlier in my life, uh, I could tell you some things about it. Um, those people aren't really skilled for other jobs. Think about it. You have, you know, you, you have, you know, say you have 100 restaurants in your state and every restaurant has, a, has 50 employees. That's 500 people. Okay. <laughs> That's 5,000 people. Nice math. Okay. Now you take away 40% of those businesses. Right? That's 2,000 people. Those restaurants, just when things get better, those restaurants don't magically open back up. They're gone. And, they're, you know, people don't, people, when they finally close the restaurant, they close their restaurant because they're on the verge of financial bankruptcy. It isn't a case where, oh, things are going great. Let's close the restaurant down because it typically it's their livelihood. It's their job. All right. Most restaurants are family owned, the ones that are closing. So that, they're gone. that, that business is gone. Now, we're not opening more restaurants right now. So where does those 2,000 people in this scenario, where do they go to work? If you've been a bartender for 15, 20 years, a waitress for 20 years, you're a cook in a kitchen, where are you going to work? The other restaurants aren't hiring. They're, they're, they're barely hanging on themselves. What are you skilled for? It, it's, it's a very real thing. You know, we still, I think the number I saw last was 10 million jobs we've lost since this. Um, I, would, I would argue another 5 million probably are being kept along with a string through some government programs that I think, um, you know, that might situation might get worse. It's, it's real. The destruction, the underlying economy is very real. I, I got the, the Natick Mall here in Massachusetts, which is one of the, um, I, got, I probably have to say it's one of the probably the busiest malls in New England. It's probably in the top five, if I had to guess. Top five busiest malls in New England. Walk around it. 20, 30% of stores are gone. I go to the, went to the Walden Galleria in Buffalo last summer or last fall. Same thing. Massive mall. Biggest mall in the area by far. Same thing. 20, 30% of the stores closed up, gone. Black. That doesn't change with a switch. You know, the government's okay. Everyone can open back up and go back out and live your life. They're still gone. It's, it's real. Now, I, walk, I walk by strip malls 
where I live here that have been filled since the day I moved here 15 years ago. Um, some of them are half empty right now. In any state I've been to, honestly, with the exception of Florida, uh, any state I've been to, uh, same thing. Vacancies everywhere. Um, except for Florida. Florida, I was in Florida in November. Um, and I, it looked like normal life. Everyone had masks on, of course, but it was pretty normal. Um, so, I mean, it remains to be seen what happens. But uh, I think, um, so anyway, so what, is that, what does that mean for 2021? What do I think of 2021? I, 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 I'm not predicting a market collapse. I'm not saying the market's going to drop 20% or be fearful. You know, if I really thought that, I'd, I'd have a much higher cash position than I do. You know, as long as the government's going to keep pumping money into the economy, it's going to keep the stock market is going to keep where it is, right? Even other people losing their jobs, if you know, whatever, you know, if they're pumping money in the financial system, that money has to go someplace, right? It's not going to go into bonds. You look at the tips, treasuries right now, it's a negative yield. Other government bonds are trading at virtually nothing. You figure, in, you figure inflation, you're negative yield in most government bonds. So they got to put in stock. The only place for any place for returns right now is the stock market. So it has to go there, which is what makes me worried. Companies are reporting profits. I think some of those profits are fictitious. Right? A lot of companies, the government paid their payroll for them. Right? You got a PPP loan. What happened? The government came in and paid your payroll for you. And then they forgave the loan. So, right? So that's going to increase profits. Right? For six, seven months, the government paid your payroll for you. Great. Your, your financials look great. But when they stop doing that, and they're going to have to eventually, I think you see earnings take a hit. Or a lot of things change in a lot of companies pretty quick. I think that might be some reality hitting people at that point. I don't know, but I'm nervous. And I, I guess, you know, if you go back to the last crisis, it would have been the housing crisis. You know, and the smart people at the time looked around and said, I don't understand why the foreclosure rate's going up, why we have 11 months inventory of homes, which is twice what is considered equilibrium. But housing prices are still going up double digits every year. People were making so much money, no one wanted to ask the question, but those who did made a fortune. Now, I'm not saying this is that, so please don't for one second think I think anything like this coming. Well, this is kind of the reverse now. It's like, drive around. You know people are unemployed. More, 10 million more people are unemployed. Businesses are closed. Restaurants are closed. People are out of work. Um, the financial destruction to a lot of people is very real. But the market just keeps making new highs. At some point in time, the market won't reward valuations being supported by government aid. 
right? At some point in time, the government has to stop the aid, right? They have to turn off the gravy train at some point. And you can argue all day whether or not it was justified, wasn't justified, was needed, not needed. I'm not making that argument. They did what they did, they have what they have, but they can't keep doing it forever. Well, what happens, right? What happens when people who have been affected by COVID and out of work have not been able to be evicted when that eviction moratorium is lifted and they owe six, seven, eight months rent, they're evicted. Same thing with the homeowners and foreclosures. Same thing with the credit cards, right? The banks aren't, as long as you're under a foreclosure moratorium or a eviction moratorium or credit card payment, you know, deferrals, that kind of stuff, as long as you're on that, you're not considered delinquent. So all the bank credit card information you're seeing, all that kind of stuff, uh, I'm not sure I believe it. They could have 10%, if they have 10% of their cardholders, right, in forbearance or whatever, and not paying the bill, uh, that 10% is not considered delinquent. When they come off foreclosure and they're behind, they are. I'm sorry, when they come off the um, forbearance, they are. But the banks can keep extending that, hoping more aid comes in, hoping those bills get paid. It can be a bit of a game. Uh, so I'm very, very cautious about that. Very, very nervous about that. Um, but again, you know, the government's talking about student loan debt forgiveness right now. So maybe they come through and they wipe out some credit card debt. I don't know. I don't know what they're going to do, um, which is why I'm not predicting a crash, which is why I'm not 80% short. The market's going to tank because I don't know what's going to happen. So you go with the most least like most likely scenario in your eyes, right? Which is, I think we just see this sort of grinding malaise. I can see the market flat down 10% this year. Uh, I think the economy, you know, without government support would be significantly worse than it is right now. Uh, as that, you know, we'll see what happens to the new aid package. There's a lot of numbers going around, but I just saw today on the news that they're hoping to draft something in the next month. So we won't know till March um, what it's going to look like, how they're going to do it, how things are going to be structured. So if we're not going to know that till March. Any Anyone guessing, any, you know, anyone making proclamations right now, it's just a guessing game. But it's clear something's going to happen. And that'll be another boost to get us through the spring, probably into early summer. Um, and then at some point, they're going to have to open things up. And they're going to have to end the eviction moratoriums, foreclosure moratoriums, things like that. And that's when I think we really see what's gone on and destruction that's happened. And I do think, you know, I would not be surprised to see a, a mild recession in this year. Um, I would not be shocked by it. I also would not be shocked to see us, you know, have just quite a, um, what's the word, um, middling growth, you know, one, 2% GDP growth. Neither would surprise me. What I would love to see, <clears throat> based on last March, is another panic where the market drops two or 3,000 points in a day or two. Because if that was to happen, there's nothing that we own. I would not be, everything we own, I'd be perfectly happy to buy again on another drop. 
because of what I outlined before of where I think we're at with a lot of stuff in the portfolio. I mean, if I could get Kendall Mortons and Williams at 50% off again, right? If, think about this way. We basically last year, what did we do? We did nothing all year. March came around. The market collapsed because everyone panicked. Over the course of two or three weeks, we made about nine or ten buys and stuff we own and then just sat. And got gains of, you know, 60, 100, 200, 300% some of these names. Just doing nothing. I would, I would, it would be the easiest job in the world if that happened every year. And I'll say it right now, if it happens again, I'll be buying stocks. I'll be buying the stuff again. You know, one stock we didn't talk about was IIPR. Is it necessary? Well, honestly, I think it is. And here's why. It's the largest cannabis landlord in the United States of America. Number two, doesn't even really exist. No matter what your thoughts on the plant, it's a plant, are, it's coming. Legalization is coming. State by state by state, legalization is coming. We've got five more states in the election. You'll be over half the U.S. in some form of legalization for adult use by the end of 2021. That is my prediction. I made that prediction end of last year. I see it already happening. New York wants to legalize. Virginia wants to legalize. Minnesota wants to legalize. They are watching these tax revenues go to the other states. So the cannabis market is going to continue to grow leaps and bounds. Okay? Companies <laughs> growing this stuff need buildings to grow it in. Who are you going to go to? Who's the largest landlord in the U.S. for cannabis? IIPR. Every state that legalizes, right, <clears throat> is another market of 100, 200 more cultivations, dispensaries, thousands of dispensaries for them to be a landlord of. There's another publicly traded one. I think they came out of a SPAC. I'm not sure if they're public yet, uh, but they're run by investing guys. And the reason I chose IAPR and the reason I was so optimistic on it when I got into this way, way back is because the executive team, they had done this before. The executive team was at Biomet, which is especially the medical rate. <clears throat> they ran it. I think they averaged like 17, 18% compounded return annually. Then they sold it for Megabox five or six years into it. I'm telling you right now, when legalization comes, <coughs> somebody tries to buy IIPR. They're not doing it now because it's cannabis. A lot of their big banks won't touch anything cannabis related, right? So your Simon Properties, your GGP, your Blackstone, your uh, Brookfield Properties. The big banks, the Bank of America, the J.P. Morgans, they don't want anything involved in cannabis whatsoever as long as it's federally illegal. But when the day comes, banking can get into it. I will promise you someone is going to make an offer for IIPR. They have too big of a head start. They are the monster in the REIT space for cannabis. Companies are not going, right? Companies, it will take years for a company to do what they've done. Right? Another major reach is going to walk in and just buy them, throw their money behind them, expand it even more. They're not going to start from scratch.
private equity loves cash flow. Private equity companies are going to come pounding at IIPR's door to buy them because they're going to buy the cash flows the company kicks off. We are getting every year on our initial price, our, our initial purchase at 38 bucks. our current yield right now on our dividend loan is 13%. That's growing. It'll probably be closer to 17% by the time this year's over. 17% annual dividend every year that grows. Love it. Who else loves that? Everyone else in the space. Now, I don't know when legalization is coming. Um, I don't know when the banking stuff is going to relax. I have no idea. I think it's sooner rather than later now after the Georgia runoff, which is great. Could be this year, could be next. I don't know. But I promise you, when it happens, IIIPR has hordes of REITs and private equity funds pounding on their door to purchase them. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. So, uh, so I have absolutely no intention of selling that. And if there's another market panic, and if that sucker drops 50%, I am buying more of it. Absolutely 100% buying more. I've seen what it takes to build cannabis facilities in this space. I know what it takes. Nobody is going to want to try and start a 60, what, a 68 property footprint from scratch. They will buy IIPR. Someone will pony up. They will pay up big time because they see what's happening. They see the future. They see the cash flows. They see what they can do. They're going to buy it. It's going to happen. There's no doubt in my mind. Um, the only thing that maybe causes it not to happen is, uh, is um, uh, you know, they refuse to sell for another year or two. They want the full print even bigger and sell for a higher price. But given their track record, I think they ran Biomed for five or six years before they sold it. IIPR we bought in 2018. I think it went public. Um, it was the end of 2017 or early 2018. They went public. So we're at year we're at year three right now. Three year three to year three and a half. Um, I, I I just I no doubt my mind is going to happen. So that's I mean that's where I am with the economy and the market and 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 what we own. Um, I'm still looking for names. I'm still looking for stuff. Um, but it's hard, you know. The market's a little goofy right now. You know, these delivery companies that are delivering meals from our restaurants to us at incredibly high valuations. I, mean, I don't know about you, but I'm under, under the opinion that when the economy opens back up and people are able to go to restaurants, people are going to choose to go to restaurants and sit home and have dinner every night with food delivery. Right? People, are, people really are dying to get out of their house. And go to a restaurant with friends and have drinks and have food, right? So when things get better, those companies are going to see significant declines in revenues, right? I think even the grocery store shopping, you know, yeah, people are going to get their big orders delivered. But right now, you know, with Instacart, people need three things they have it delivered. They don't want to go to the store. They're scared. When they're not scared, they'll say, hey, stop at the store at home from work or do this, like, like we always used to do. So I think even those revenues are going to fall. So even those companies that are flying high now, I think they're going to get stuck. 
there's a significant number of restaurant workers who are now delivering food for Instacart and DoorDash or whoever. They're going to lose those jobs again, right? They won't be making any money, right? If you have X number of orders and X number of people delivering them, when you cut those orders down 20, 30, 40% or more, I bet you, well, you don't need so many people anymore, do you? So, you know, there's been a lot of hiring in those businesses, but I think that's all temporary. I don't think that's a long-term job for people. I don't think we've seen a fundamental shift in society where people no longer want to go eat in restaurants. As soon as they feel safe, as soon as they've had their vaccines, they're going to want to go back out. And those jobs are going to be lost. And there's a lot of them. There's a lot of those jobs out there right now. I really, so, you know, it's, you know, there's been some job creation on the negative and on the positive, there'll be some more, there'll be some job destruction in those very areas. So I think, I really think right now the market's a trader's market. I think you see some swings, you know, like the whole GameStop thing. I mean, last time we saw stuff like GameStop was, you know, 1999. Um, the difference was it was not just GameStop and four or five other stocks. It was the entire NASDAQ, right? Anything with a dot-com on it <laughs> went to a $10 billion valuation immediately. Um, and then the whole thing with GameStop, I, I don't blame the Reddit people. I don't blame Robin Hood. I don't blame the brokerages. They, they did what they were ordered to do by the clearinghouses. It's the regulator's fault. When the regulators allow more shares to be sold short than exist in a company's float, that's what happens. You set this up. Now, for those of you who have been around for a while, that was a core, and this is sort of, you know, a little bit bitter here. That was a core reason for holding Sears for so many years. Sears for five, six years straight had short interest well above the available shares, well above the available shares. They just never got, there was no Reddit army at that time to recognize this and do the same short squeeze. This saw it in Volkswagen, I don't know, what was it, maybe seven, eight years ago? Volkswagen went to like a thousand bucks in a day and collapsed in like four days. Same kind of issue. But why do we allow people to short more of a stock that exists? Because we create these issues. It's a regulatory issue. Um, it should be banned. When a company gets the 90% or 95% short interest, you should not be allowed to sell short anymore until the short interest changes. And honestly, in today's day and age, short interest is, um, I think it's done weekly. Why? Why isn't short interest done on a real time? You can't tell me that we can't write a computer program that can track short interest in real time. It's just inconceivable. It's inconceivable. Uh, but we don't. Um, so then you get situations like this that happen. And yeah, it was insanity. You know, when you can look at this, read a news clipping, and I actually did this, read a news clipping, so you know what? I'm going to buy a couple of options in, in Bed Bath & Beyond. It was like 350 you know, just, just to see what happens. Small amount of money. I'm like, you know, I was bored, suffering through COVID, sitting home. Like, let's just see if something good can happen today. So I bought 10 contracts. Woke up the next morning, up 160%, 9.45, I sold them. And I was just, this is, that was just stupid. It was just stupid easy. 
and it's not investing. It's just a failure of regulators, and people took advantage of it. And I applaud. You know what? If you made a killing at GameStop, God bless you. Good for you. But you know what? Just as many people have gotten their asses handed to them on the way down <laughs> the last week. It happens all the time, right? The late people in, you know, when you have, you know, you know it's a bubble, you know it's a mania. And I put I put on Twitter, I put on the stock market, the, the old tulip. I have a, a picture of the tulip bubble in my house. And I put it on there. I said, this is what you're looking at with GameStop. I'm sure shit has played out exactly. Of course, they were all like, you're an idiot. You have no idea what you're talking about. This will be a 10,000. Okay, well, whatever. It happened. But when you get people you barely know contact you know, the would say, hey, what's about this GameStop? What about these other stops? Should we be buying these? Should we be investing in these? Is what they were saying. My reply was, I was like, this, you're not investing if you're buying those. You're gambling, right? It's you're you're doing you're doing uh, what's the one? Black or red? You know the the wheel one, roulette. It's roulette, black or red. You know whatever that mob decides to do any given day, that's what that stock's doing. So if you're gonna be if you're going to and I refuse to call it investing. If you're going to purchase those shares, then you need to watch them because as you could make 50% in a day or you could lose the same amount in a day. And, you know, a lot of people did really well on the way up and a lot of people are getting crushed on the way down. So, you know, but this is what happens when, when you, you, you flush the system full of money. You don't force people to pay the bills with that money. Interest rates are so low, putting it in the bank's waste, right? Money in your bank account effectively with inflation loses value every year. Bonds, like I said before, same thing, actually negative yield in some bonds. So people got to put in the stock market. So it was liquidity manufactured event coupled with, I mean, really stupid short sellers Right, who got themselves in over a bucket, being 130% short of the stock. You know, and, you know, Buffett always says, "Why would you short a four-dollar stock? The most you're going to make is four bucks a share." Right, and he said that over and over and over. Shorting low, low-dollar-cost stocks is stupid, but they were, and then they got killed, and that's what happens. So, you know, I, I think if anything comes from this, but I doubt it will. Um, you know, regulators maybe wake up and say, hey, you know, they figure out a way to stop the short interest from getting, let's say, over 90% in any stock. And then you effectively, not effectively, you you diminish the chances of something like this happening. Because if there's always shares to buy, someone can always cover. When all the shorts are trapped and you keep buying the stock and then they have to cover and there's no shares available, blah, 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 you see what happens. So, um I mean, I think that's enough about that. So um, please, you know, that's all I really have today. So please send me some questions because um, I really um, I really like answering questions versus uh, just kind of talking. So um, send some questions. I'll get back to doing this on a regular basis now that things have kind of settled down a little bit. And um, I hope everyone is making it through COVID well. I uh, hope your families are safe and sound. And I hope everybody has a fantastic weekend. We'll, uh, we'll be back next week.